Here's an honest question. How are you supposed to know what to do with your money? Very few of us are exposed to meaningful advice on how to manage our finances. Even fewer have the means to get professional financial guidance. Betterment is a platform that was built to do something radical, to give accessible financial advice that puts you first. If you're like most Americans, your money is probably sitting in a savings account, likely earning you next to nothing. Maybe you have an investment account that you're not really sure what to do with. Betterment can help you make sense of what to do with your money. Investing involves risk, but you don't have to know the ins and the outs of the stock market to start investing for your future. Betterment's technology will put your money to work choosing the stocks and strategies that are right for you because we know you have other things to do. Betterment's platform can even provide guidance on what financial goals make sense for you. Give your money a new home with Betterment, peace of mind included. Download the Betterment app today. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-M-E-N-T for the betterment of you. If you're a politics junkie, you need to be listening to the Election Ride Home podcast. Every day at 5 p.m., former This American Life contributor Chris Higgins reports from the campaign trail. Who's up? Who's down? What issues are getting traction and what do the polls say? Search your podcast app now for Ride Home and subscribe to the Election Ride Home podcast. Stories and content in weird darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. Life on Smutty Nose Island, in the Isles of Shoals, off the coast of New Hampshire, was hard in the 1870s. The winter months were bitter cold, and the winter storms were devastating. Marin Hontvet, her sister Karen Christensen, and their sister-in-law, Aneth Christensen, dreaded the loneliness and isolation of the island when the men of the house were away fishing. The night of March 6, 1873, with the men away, the women were prepared to be alone in the cold house. But nothing could have prepared them for the arrival, by rowboat, of a deranged axe murderer. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, weirdos. This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And be sure to subscribe to the podcast if you've not done so already so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… 17 years after he disappeared, has a man's killer finally been brought to justice? A man shares his belief that he's being stalked by something paranormal. One of our weirdo family members shares how the strange Elisa Lamb case creeped into a terrifying case of sleep paralysis. The Bermuda Triangle is not the only vortex of missing ships and half a world away, in a whole other ocean there lies a counterpart in the waters near Japan, which by all accounts is just as strange as its Bermuda cousin. A man who had no issues before is suddenly finding the energy in his house is out of whack. And with all the men of the house gone fishing, an axe murderer chooses the perfect time 
to attack and kill the women inside the home on their small island. We begin with that story. Now bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. In 1866, John and Marin Hontvet left hard times in Norway for the promise of America. They spent some time in Boston but did not really like city life. As soon as they could afford it, the Hontvets moved up the coast and bought a house on Smutty Nose Island in the Isles of Shoals, belonging to the state of Maine but geographically closer to New Hampshire. John bought a visiting schooner and soon had earned enough money to send for his brother Matthew and Marin's sister, Karen Christensen. Matthew was a great help to John, but he felt he needed another hand on the schooner. In the spring of 1972, he offered a job to Louis Wagner, a Prussian immigrant living in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, in exchange for room and board. Louis Wagner was down on his luck, working when he could for local fishermen. Though he was not happy to be working without pay, Wagner welcomed the stability this situation offered and enjoyed having two women to feed and take care of him. Wagner worked on the boat through the summer, though he was often laid up with rheumatism. That fall, more relatives arrived from Norway – Marin and Karen's brother Evan Christensen and his new bride, Aneth. Louis Wagner's arrangement with the Hontvets ended soon after. On the morning of March 5, 1873, John, Matthew, and Evan took the schooner to Portsmouth, New Hampshire to pick up a shipment of bait arriving from Boston. The shipment was delayed, and they sent word back to Marin by another fishing boat that they would be staying in town that night. In Portsmouth, they ran into Lewis Wagner and offered him a job helping them with the bait. He knew the shipment was late and they would not be heading home that night. When the bait did arrive, Lewis Wagner could not be found. Around eight that night, a rowboat was stolen from Pickering Wharf in Portsmouth. The thief rowed for five hours through bitter March winds across ten miles of frigid sea from Portsmouth to Smutty Nose Island. The man knew his way around Smutty Nose. He docked the boat on the south side of the island and walked through the snow directly to the only occupied house on the island, the Hontvets. Karen had been working at a hotel on Appledore, another of the Isles of Shoals, but that night she was visiting her sister. Because of the cold and their loneliness without the men, the three women stayed close together downstairs, Marin and Aneth in the downstairs bedroom and Karen on a makeshift bed in the kitchen. The hinge on the kitchen door creaked as the intruder opened it and the family dog, Ringe, barked, waking Karen. She thought that it was John returning from Portsmouth after all. The man was startled to find someone sleeping in the kitchen, and he sprang to life, grabbing a chair and raising it over his head. Karen screamed, shouting, John scares me! John scares me! The man started beating her with the chair. Still thinking it was her brother-in-law, Karen shouted, John is killing me! John is killing me! 
The screaming woke Marin, who opened the bedroom door and saw the dark form of a man standing over her Karen. He had paused for a moment, and Marin was able to drag her sister into the bedroom and bolt the door. The killer pounded on the door. It would not keep him out for long. Marin persuaded Aneth that the only hope was to leave through the bedroom window. Aneth went through the window, but only went a few paces before freezing with terror. The killer had run out of the house, grabbed the dull axe that was kept by the door for chopping ice, and ran toward Aneth. Aneth now recognized the man and shouted, Lewis! 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 From the bedroom window, Marin saw the man raise the axe and with one blow crushed Aneth's skull, killing her. The killer ran back into the house and started pounding again on the bedroom door. Marin tried to get Karen through the window but saw that her sister was dying too. Marin's only hope was to climb out the window and leave her sister behind. As she went for the window, he burst into the room and rushed at her with the axe. She jumped out the window as he swung the axe, hitting the sill with so much force that the head of the axe broke off. From outside the window, she heard Karen scream as he finished her off. Marin ran quickly looking for a place to hide. She was carrying the dog, afraid that if she let him down, his barking would give away her position. She first thought of hiding in the henhouse, but rejected this idea as too obvious. She then ran to the dock, thinking she could escape the island in the killer's boat. But there was no boat there. He had come from the other side of the island. Finally, she found an isolated section of rock. There, barefoot, in her night clothes with only the dog for warmth, she waited until dawn. In the daylight, not knowing whether or not the killer was still on the island, she hurried to Malaga, a small island connected to the north end of Nose by a breakwater. From there, she could shout to Appledore Island. She got the attention of some children playing on Appledore and was rescued. Witnesses in Portsmouth said that Lewis Wagner looked haggard that morning, as if he hadn't slept. He ate breakfast at his boarding house, then packed his bags and took the 9 a.m. train to Boston. When Marin told the story of the murders and accused Lewis Wagner, a manhunt began. In Boston, Wagner bought a new set of clothes, new boots. He had a haircut and shaved his beard. But he went straight to the North End neighborhood where he had previously lived and was well-known. By 7 that night, Wagner was arrested and on the train back to Portsmouth. In Portsmouth, a crowd carrying torches was waiting at the depot when the train came in. He was hurried into a waiting police wagon, which was pelted with stones all the way to the police station. Another crowd was waiting there, and a line of police carrying shotguns was required to guarantee his safe entry. With Wagner safely inside the Portsmouth jail, the authorities needed to address some procedural matters. The Isles of Shoals are divided between New Hampshire and Maine, and while geographically close to New Hampshire, Smutty Nose Island is part of the state of Maine. Wagner had to be extradited to Maine, and he would run the gauntlet of the rock-throwing crowd once more. He was taken by train to South Berwick, Maine, then to the supposedly more secure prison in Alfred, Maine. Lewis Wagner's trial began June 9, 1873 and lasted nine days. The circumstantial evidence against him was strong. 
Before leaving Portsmouth, he had hidden a bloody shirt in the privy of his boarding house. Fifteen dollars and some change had been stolen from the Montbet's house. Wagner had paid fifteen dollars for his new suit and boots, and among the coins was one of Marin's buttons. The button was found in Wagner's pocket when he was arrested. Witnesses testified that Wagner, at his lowest moments, said he would commit murder for money. He knew John Montfort had money in the house that he was saving for a new boat. Marin Montfort's testimony was compelling, stating without hesitation that the killer was Louis Wagner and relating Aneth's last words, Louis, Louis, Louis. But the most damaging testimony came from Louis Wagner himself. His testimony was rambling and sometimes incoherent. He claimed he was working that night, baiting trolls for a fishing boat, but he could not remember the name of the boat, the name of the captain, or even the location of the pier. Then he claimed he went to a saloon, had two beers, then went to sleep outside, but he could not remember the name of the saloon or its location. No witnesses were presented to verify any of his testimony. The verdict? Guilty of premeditated murder. Louis Wagner had been working on an escape plan since he arrived at Alfred Prison, and he knew he had to act on it before he was transferred again. The night after the verdict, he picked the lock with the end of a wooden toothbrush, put a stool and other items under his blanket to make it appear he was sleeping soundly, then during the guard's regular 3 a.m. break, he made his escape. Once again he was free, and once again did not know where to go. He was afraid to take to the woods, so he followed the roads. He was shown some hospitality by a local farmer, but was captured at the farmer's house by a group of vigilantes and taken back to Alfred Prison. On March 26, 1875, Louis Wagner was hanged along with a man named John True Gordon, who murdered his brother's wife and child. Though Gordon begged for his life, Wagner remained silent. Louis Wagner strongly professed his innocence and never wavered. In spite of overwhelming evidence against him, Louis Wagner's steadfast assertion of innocence, together with the incomprehensible nature of his crime, have led some people to seek alternative answers. One, Marin Huntfit was the killer. As the only eyewitness, her testimony was given much weight, but she had more opportunity than a man in a rowboat from Portsmouth. An unsubstantiated rumor published by a number of newspapers in 1876 claimed that Marin confessed on her deathbed. The theory that Marin committed the murders was fictionalized by Anita Shreve in her 1997 novel The Weight of Water. Number two. John Huntfit was the killer. In Marin's own testimony, Karen thought the man was John Huntfit, even as he was beating her with a chair. Perhaps John did the murders, and Marin covered for him. For obvious reasons, this story would be hard to substantiate. Those who have looked at the case, though, objectively believe that the state of Maine executed the right man. There's something stalking me. I don't know what it wants, but almost every night since I started seeing it, it has terrorized me. It doesn't 
touch me. It doesn't communicate in any sort of way. It just fills me with horror. If I seem to ramble, please forgive me. I haven't slept in several days. Six days ago, I was going down to the basement to bring up some laundry, and I glanced out the door as I passed. There was a figure standing at the far edge of our yard. Her back was to me, and she was just standing there, looking into the woods beyond our yard. She was dressed in nothing but a light gown. It had lots of flowing material coming off it that was whipping around in the air slowly. The whole scene creeped me out instantly, but I thought she might be a friend of our downstairs neighbor, so I continued to the basement. When I came back up, she wasn't there. The next night, I went down again, and as I passed the back door, I looked outside. The woman was back. She was exactly like she was the night before, facing away, not moving. The hair on my arms and neck stood straight up when I saw her. I was even more creeped out when I realized she was in the same clothes as the night before. That's when I did something I shouldn't have. I opened the back door. Leaning out, I called to her to see if she was okay. She didn't respond. She didn't make any sort of indication that she'd heard me. It was freezing cold, so I shut the door and locked it. Coming back upstairs afterward, I looked out the window, and she was gone again. Later that same night, I was in the bedroom, getting ready to go to sleep. Everything was dark because my wife had gone to bed before me. Our bedroom looks out over the backyard, and my side of the bed faces the windows, so I have to go past them to get into bed. As I was doing so, I suddenly got that same dread feeling in my stomach that I'd gotten the first time I saw the figure in the backyard. Something compelled me to hesitate by the windows. My hands were shaking as I pulled the curtain back a bit and peeked through the shades into the backyard. It was a clear night, so the backyard wasn't shrouded in darkness. The woman was standing in the middle of the backyard, no longer at the edge of the woods, and she was facing the house with her head tilted up to look directly at the window I was peeking from. I jerked away instantly, afraid she'd seen me. Her face was covered in shadow and hair, but I saw her chin and nose, a sharp nose and a thin chin. Gray. Her skin looks gray, I think. Her hair is black and long. I was so scared. I jumped into bed and covered myself with the covers. The next day, I played outside in the snow with my four-year-old daughter. She wanted me to pull her on a sled in the backyard, but just the thought of going back there made me scared again, so I talked her into digging holes in the snow in the front yard instead. That night, things went from bad to worse. Somehow, I had managed to forget about the woman. Then, in the middle of the night, my daughter started crying. Our bedroom is just across the hall from hers. I thought she might need to use the bathroom, or maybe she was just having a bad dream, so I went into her room to see if she was okay. She was uncovered, curled into a ball on her mattress. I pulled her covers over her, and that's when she whispered to me, Daddy, there's someone in my closet. Instant 
goosebumps. I turned my head slowly toward the closet door at the end of her bed. Normally, the closet is shut, but now it was open. The woman was standing in my daughter's closet. Not even when it was clear that I saw her did she move or make a sound. She just stood there and looked at me through that cracked open door. My blood ran cold when I saw her. Get up, I told my daughter. Get in my arms, quickly, quickly. She scrambled up and hugged me tightly, and I walked backward out of the room, watching the closet the entire time. In my mind, I imagined her throwing the closet door open and running at us, arms outstretched. I just hugged my daughter and walked backward into my room. The woman never appeared in the doorway. I heard no movement from my daughter's room. I tucked her into my bed and stood there watching the doorway to her bedroom. I did not go back in. I just stood there and watched and listened. When I finally got the courage to climb into bed, I couldn't sleep. Sunday, I told my wife everything. I told her about the first time I saw this woman. I told her about calling out to her and it was my fault for our daughter's bad dreams and that I shouldn't encourage her to be afraid of her closet. Sunday night, my daughter called to me from her room again. Call me a coward, but I couldn't go back into that room. I called her quietly to come in our bed, but she cried and said she was scared. I wanted to go and get her, but I was scared too. I told her to pull her blankets up and cover herself. Just cover yourself, honey, and you'll be okay. I prayed that was true. I lay there peeking over the sleeping form of my wife and out into the hallway at the closed door of my daughter's room and just kept praying. I heard her cry for a while longer, but then she went quiet and I hoped that she was asleep. Monday, I piled toys in front of the door to her closet. By that time, there was no doubt in my mind that this was some sort of ghost or apparition, but I piled things in front of the closet anyway. Like a pile of toys could stop a ghost, I know. Monday night, my daughter did not cry, but I still didn't sleep. I lay there, looking at the ceiling, tense. Around 2 a.m., I heard her bedroom door creak open and I knew something was wrong. She must be scared, I thought, so I called to her, like before, just come to me and you can sleep in our bed, sweetie. But she didn't come. I peeked over my wife. The woman was standing there in the doorway to my daughter's room. Her arms hung at her sides. Her shoulders slouched down. Her gown was dirty like it hadn't been washed in years and hung off of her like torn rags. I wasn't breathing. I wasn't blinking. I just looked at her, and she looked at me, and I thought, this is it. I'm going to die. She never moved, never made a sound. I whispered, please, go away. Please, leave me alone. Please, I'm sorry. I couldn't look away. If I look away, she'll get closer. I was sure of it. If I close my eyes, when I open them, she'll be standing over me, looking at me. At some point, she was gone. It's like I fell asleep with my eyes open. I don't remember her disappearing, just that I was looking at the doorway and she wasn't there anymore. 
Last night, I lay awake, waiting. I asked my wife to shut our bedroom door because the nightlight in the hallway was, well, it was keeping me awake. It was stupid. I don't know what I was thinking. Like clockwork, I heard my daughter's bedroom door creak open. I held my breath. Then I heard the floorboards in the hallway creaking and I started shaking uncontrollably. I heard our bedroom door open and I knew she was standing there in the doorway, not moving, just looking at me. I didn't look. I couldn't, but I knew. I did what I told my daughter to do. I pulled the covers over my head. I am a complete mess. A zombie at work. I don't want to go home anymore. I think I see the woman in other places now. A glance while driving, and I think she's sitting in the passenger seat of the truck behind me, or standing down the street as I drive off. Just sitting here at my desk, someone passes by behind me and I jump. I'm afraid that if I turn around, she'll be there waiting for me to look at her. And what if I saw her face? I don't want to see it. I don't want to see her anymore, but I I don't know what to do. The only hope I feel is that for unrelated reasons, my wife is talking about moving. But our lease isn't up until May. I don't know if I can hold out that long. For the last few months, I've been having some problems with the clocks in my house. Every now and again, they just die. The clocks stop working. I'm constantly replacing batteries, and they seem fine. I come home from work, and the batteries are dead. I also have been having some strange incidents with items in my house. In the morning, I went to work and left my iPad charging. In the afternoon, I came home and found the iPad sitting where I had left it, and the cable had been unplugged and wrapped up. A lot of little things have been happening, too. The TV remote isn't where I could have sworn I left it. My alarm clock went off for absolutely no reason in the middle of the night. I was in bed and heard the kettle downstairs turn on for absolutely no reason. It's just little things that make absolutely no sense. The alarm clock incident was the strangest because it was actually unplugged when it went off. I was lying in bed, asleep, when all of a sudden I heard three or four beeps, woke up, looked over and the thing was dead. No electricity. One of the light bulbs in the kitchen exploded. I was sitting watching TV when I heard an almighty crack, went into the kitchen, found glass all over the floor the light bulb had exploded. And on and on it goes. I haven't seen anything or heard anything. It's just the electrics and energy in my house. It's like something is overloading or draining anything that needs energy. Has anyone come across anything like this? Up next, one of our weirdo family members shares how the strange Elisa Lamb case creeped into a terrifying case of sleep paralysis. Also, the Bermuda Triangle is not the only vortex of missing ships, and half a world away, 
in a whole other ocean, there lies a counterpart in the waters near Japan, which by all accounts is just as strange as its Bermuda cousin. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. Congratulations to Rushab! He's this week's Weird Darkness podcast retweet winner, and he's receiving a Weird Darkness laptop case for being a Weird Darkness ambassador on Twitter. And if you want to win some free Weird Darkness merchandise yourself, it's easy to get your name in the random drawing each Monday. Follow Weird Darkness on Twitter and then retweet the posts when you see them. You can retweet as many of them as you'd like. The more you retweet, the greater your chance of winning. A new drawing every Monday, and this week's winner will receive a Weird Darkness coffee mug. So jump onto Twitter, follow Weird Darkness right now, and get to retweeting, you weirdos. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by MyPillow. Why don't we hear what Weird Darkness family member Mike had to say about his? Darren, I happen to be trying new pillows from different sources, something different than the standard pillows that get crappy all too soon. So, what the heck? My pillow sounded worth trying. I ordered two queen-size MyPillows, and these really are, in a word, luxurious. The way your head and neck just sinks ever so comfortably into the pillow, it's so soft but at the same time so supportive. Mike said he received two queen-size MyPillows, that's because he heard about them on Weird Darkness and he was able to get two premium MyPillows for one low price. Go to MyPillow.com, use the promo code WEIRD, that's MyPillow.com, then use the promo code WEIRD. Hi, Darren. I was excited to see your coverage of the bewildering Elisa Lamb case. A few months ago, I had a strange, semi-paranormal experience involving that case. This was something that happened on the border between sleeping and waking. I've had sleep paralysis events from time to time, but this was by far the most vivid because it was somewhat tied to reality. I've been reading all night about the murder of a young woman, news reports, PDFs of the autopsy, third-party investigations, documentaries, etc. Her death had been ruled an accident, but I believed this was highly unlikely. And finally, after hours of searching, I found a man who I believed could have been her killer. I looked at photos of him on his social media profiles and was struck by a chilling fear. That night I went to sleep and had a dream that I will never forget. I was in a hotel with my best friend on one of our ghost hunting missions, looking for someone or something. I believe we must have been trying to find the murderer. We came upon a door with a small slit in the window, through which I could see the thickest black darkness. Believing I had found what I was looking for, I opened that door to find another door. I opened the second one and found an entirely pitch-black room. That room contained nothing but the purest form of evil, the spirit of the killer. Panicking, I rushed around in the darkness and tried to leave the room. In my panic, I woke myself partially out of the dream, but woke up into my own bed in sleep paralysis. I saw a disturbance in the air, similar to when you're playing a video game and someone's invisible but you can still see them. 
It was the silhouette of a man, and he was pounding hard on the foot of my bed. He was angry, and he was after me. I had entered the room and discovered him. After a length of time that was physically short but emotionally long, I was finally able to wake myself up. I have never been conventionally religious, but after waking up that day, I felt like I truly understood evil and vowed never to mess with its forces. The sprawling oceans of our planet have long been a wellspring of tales of the strange and the unexplained, perhaps not surprising considering the sheer vastness of their largely unexplored depths. Among all of the various phenomena of the sea, perhaps the most well-known is that famous anomalous region of vanishing ships and planes called the Bermuda Triangle, which has long been a persistent paranormal mystery and the subject of much debate and speculation. Yet the Bermuda Triangle is not the only such vortex of missing ships. A half-world away, in a whole other ocean, there lies a counterpart in the waters near Japan, which by all accounts is just as strange as its Bermuda cousin. The area that has come to be known variously as the Devil's Sea, the Dragon's Triangle, and the Taiwan Triangle is an expansive ocean lying off the coast of Japan that has, over the centuries, accrued a sinister reputation for swallowing vessels up to never be seen again. The exact location of this dreaded patch of malevolent ocean remains nebulous, with most estimates putting it as a triangle with one corner in Taiwan, another at the Japanese island of Miyakijima, and another at the island of Iwo Jima. Although reports vary and the exact geographical dimensions and perimeter fluctuate and are uncertain, what is consistent is that this place has a dark history that goes way back and involves ships and aircraft disappearing without a trace, sort of like a Bermuda Triangle of the Orient. The region has apparently been seen as a menace since around 1000 BC when it was widely believed that dragons lurked in the depths here, pulling down various fishing and military vessels to their doom. One story tells of how the warlord and fifth Khan of the Mongol Empire, Kublai Khan, tried to invade Japan twice in the years 1274 and 1281 by crossing the Devil's Sea and ended up losing many of the ships and around 40,000 men in the process with many of these wrecks still dotting the ocean floor in their watery graves. Through the centuries since, the area was supposedly known as a place to be avoided, and countless fishermen and travelers were said to venture out over the waves to vanish off the face of the earth. However, for all of these alleged mysterious disappearances, the phenomenon remained largely unknown to the outside world until the notable author Charles Berlitz published his 1974 book on the matter titled The Bermuda Triangle, which mentions the Devil's Sea, as well as a follow-up 1989 book, The Dragon's Triangle, which was devoted to it and provided numerous modern cases of supposed vanishings in the area. Berlitz claimed that Japan had lost at least five military vessels between the years of 1952 
1954, along with their crews, totaling 700 men, all of whom were supposedly never heard from again. The Japanese government also sent a research vessel called the Kayamaru No. 5 into the area on September 24, 1953, but it too disappeared with its crew of 31, becoming one of the most well-known casualties of the Devil's Sea and also prompting the government to issue a warning that the area was unsafe for travel. Interestingly, besides ships or planes seeming to cease to exist, the Devil's Sea has allegedly produced reports of many other weird phenomena as well. UFOs are frequently spotted in the area, as well as ghost ships and mystery lights out over the waves. In addition, there are accounts of people experiencing lost time, inexplicably malfunctioning equipment, or anomalous magnetic disturbances. Due to this high strangeness and the number of missing ships in the region, and greatly helped along by Berlitz's mainstream book, the Devil's Sea has become known as a phenomenon similar to the more well-known Bermuda Triangle, and has such generated plenty of theories as to why this particular stretch of ocean should claim so many lives. Perhaps the most rational lies in the fact that the two islands most often associated with the Triangle, Miyakijima and Iwo Jima, happen to lie right along a line of very active undersea volcanoes called the Izubanin Volcanic Arc, which spans 2,500 kilometers across the Pacific all the way to Guam. Considering this, violent volcanic activity or related underwater seismic events could very well be causing some of these reported vanishings. Indeed, in his book The Bermuda Triangle Mystery Solved, skeptical researcher Larry Cush blames a volcano called Mayajin Shou on the incident with the Kyle Maru No. 5 pointing out the debris actually was found that suggested this, and going even further to mention that this particular volcano wasn't even in the traditional Devil's Sea to begin with. Other rational theories are that these vessels were lost due to storms or some environmental phenomena, or were just the victims of any one of other many perils inherent to the ocean. With the sheer size of the purported Devil's Sea and the heavy boat traffic through the region, it seems only natural that there should be wrecks and even vanishings, and perhaps these have been over-exaggerated as being caused by supernatural phenomena focused on this one area. One of the more fringe theories about the Devil's Sea is linked to a concept put forward by the cryptozoologist and paranormal researcher Ivan T. Sanderson. In the 1960s and 70s, Sanderson came up with the idea that the Earth was intersected with lines of power that converged at 12 portals located throughout the world, which he referred to as the vile vortices. He believed that these vortices formed triangles in a certain pattern along particular lines of latitude, including the infamous Bermuda Triangle that were responsible for making ships and planes vanish through mysterious means, possibly even to other dimensions through some sort of doorway. These vile vortices have been blamed for the phenomena of the Bermuda Triangle as well as for the other areas of the planet that have been ground zero for strange disappearances or paranormal phenomena, and the Devil's Sea apparently lies right in the middle of one. 
Sanderson would write of these vortices and the Devil's Sea in an article in Saga magazine called The Twelve Devil's Graveyards Around the World. Then, of course, there's the idea that the Devil's Sea never really existed at all outside of the minds of the writers who have covered it. Many skeptics have pointed out that there seemed to be no reports or mention of the Devil's Sea or its bizarre vanishings in newspapers or other publications prior to Sanderson's work on Vile Vortices and the publication of Berlitz's book, even in Japan, and that almost every piece of literature on the phenomenon can be traced back to these works on the matter, with little verification of sources to back up their vague claims and frequent bending of certain facts to fit in more with the Devil's Sea mystery. All the books and articles on the phenomenon seem to begin there, gradually building upon the history and mythology of the Devil's Sea to the point where it is no longer possible to disentangle any fact from fiction. Is the whole mystery of the Devil's Sea and its claimed history of centuries of unexplained vanishings and paranormal phenomena merely a relatively recent invention, based on a figment of the imagination and a twisting of facts? We are left with an intriguing tale of the high seas, of a realm with a fearsome dark history where people venture to drop off the face of the earth without explanation. But is any of it true? Does a mysterious force thrum beneath the waves in this corner of the world? Or is it all due to normal, natural phenomena? Is it somehow connected to other similar places, such as the Bermuda Triangle? Or is it all tall tales and speculation? Indeed, has the Devil's Sea ever even existed outside of the imagination at all? Whatever the case may be, it is all certainly an entertaining case of yet another supposed mysterious place in our world's vast and little understood oceans. When Weird Darkness Returns Seventeen years after he disappeared, has a man's killer been brought to justice? The strange case of Zeb Quinn's disappearance is up next. Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally, as I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it, if you're in a constant state of sadness, as I was, maybe you're even fighting thoughts of suicide, you will try just about anything to get away from that pain. You might be using drugs or alcohol to try and fight it. And if that's you, please stop and do me a favor. Make one phone call that can save your life. The Hope and Helpline is there for you right now, no matter where you are. You can speak to someone who not only wants to help you, but has likely gone through depression or addiction themselves and are in recovery. They can help you find a way off that dark path you're on in a healthy way. Call 800-830-9804. That's 800-830-9804. Call for yourself or call to help someone who can't or won't call on their own. Someone is there 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. 800-830-9804. 800-830-9804. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the terrifying audiobook the Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey. This terrifying sequel to the book Black-Eyed Kids has stories of small children 
turning up on people's doorsteps all across the world, spreading fear and terror, and these stories have only increased over time. Supernatural expert G. Michael Vasey carefully investigates this truly terrifying phenomenon using real-life encounters with these scary supernatural beings. The result is an unsettling and sometimes terrifying book that will have you fearfully anticipating the next knock at your door. Who and what are these mysterious visitors to the doorstep? Are they demons? Aliens? What do they want? Why do they need to enter your home and what happens if they do? Small kids that ask to use your phone or ask for a ride, and yet those that encounter them are scared to death even before they notice the black eyes. The Chilling True Terror of the Black-Eyed Kids, a monster compilation by G. Michael Vasey, narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Get the audiobook free by signing up for a 30-day free trial of Audible. On March 17, 2015, Robert Jason Owens was arrested for the murder of celebrity chef and former Food Network star contestant Christy Schoen Codd, her husband Joseph Codd, and their unborn child. As part of a plea deal, Owens admitted to killing the Codd family and dismembering their remains. When the police searched Owens' home, they found fabric, leather materials, and unknown hard fragments buried under a layer of concrete, as well as human remains in Owens' wood stove. The murder of the Cods wasn't the first time that Owens had been involved in a mysterious disappearance, and it would soon become clear that those unknown fragments and human remains were remnants of an earlier case. Some 15 years earlier, Owens seems to have been the last person to see Zeb Quinn alive. At the time, Quinn was a young man of 18, working in the electronics department of a Walmart in Asheville, North Carolina. On January 2, 2000, Quinn got off work at around 9 p.m. and met his friend and co-worker Robert Jason Owens in the parking lot. The two were planning to go to a nearby town of Leicester to look at a car that Quinn was interested in buying. Quinn and Owens drove separately and stopped at a gas station along the way to buy drinks. Surveillance footage from the gas station provides the last known photographs of Zeb Quinn alive. After leaving the gas station, Owens later told police that Quinn signaled for him to pull over, saying that he had been paged and needed to return the call right away. After going to a payphone, Owens claimed that Quinn was frantic and had to call off the trip, speeding away in such haste that he actually struck Owens' vehicle. Later that same night, Owens was treated at a nearby hospital for broken ribs and a head injury that he claimed to have acquired in a separate accident, though no accident report was ever filed for either collision. This was just the beginning of the bizarre circumstances surrounding Zeb Quinn's disappearance. Police eventually traced the call that was placed to Quinn's pager to the phone of his aunt, Ina Eustich. Eustich told police that she wasn't even home at the time of the call. She'd been having dinner with a friend named Tamara Taylor. Taylor was the mother of Misty Taylor, with whom Quinn had a relationship 
that may or may not have been becoming romantic at the time of his disappearance. However, Misty and her boyfriend, Wesley Smith, were both present at the dinner as well. Eustich later reported to the police that her house had been broken into while she was out to dinner with her friend, though nothing was stolen. The next day, Quinn's mother filed a missing persons report for her son, but it wasn't until four days later, on January 6th, that his car was found abandoned in the parking lot of the Little Pig's Barbecue Restaurant near the hospital where his mother worked. She later told police that she believed the car had been left there on purpose so that whoever had abducted her son would be sure that she would find it. In the car was a live puppy, several empty bottles, a jacket that didn't belong to Quinn, and a hotel key card that the authorities were never able to match with a particular hotel. The headlights had been left on, and a pair of lips and an exclamation point had been drawn in pink lipstick on the rear windshield. Of Quinn, however, there was no trace. Two days after Quinn's disappearance, before his car had yet been found in the Little Pig's parking lot, a phone call was placed to the Walmart where he worked. The caller claimed to be Quinn, saying that he was calling in sick, but the co-worker who took the call said that the voice didn't sound like Quinn's. Robert Jason Owens would later confess to placing that call himself, at the time saying that he was doing so as a favor to his friend. For 15 years, the investigation went on, though seemingly little progress was made. Misty Taylor and her boyfriend were questioned, as were others, but nothing could link them to the disappearance of Quinn. In 2012, the case was featured on the TV show Disappeared, but still no answers were forthcoming. Quinn's case became well-known on the internet, where many communities attempted to discover the evidence that would either bring his killer to justice or make clear exactly where the teen had disappeared to. While Robert Jason Owens remained the chief suspect, it wasn't until the murder of the Cod family that he was finally charged with a crime. According to Owens, he ran over the Cods while on painkillers and then dismembered and hid their remains in a panic. He never confessed to the murder of Zeb Quinn, but in 2017, a grand jury finally handed down an indictment charging Owens with Quinn's death some 17 years before. Authorities said that the indictment was the result of years of investigative work and persistence, but whether it was ultimately prompted by new evidence discovered during the investigation into the murder of the Cod family has still not been revealed by the police. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron. In fact, a big welcome to Lanny Vang. They're my newest patron and my newest weirdo family member. Thank you for supporting what I do, Lanny. I greatly appreciate it. Patrons get commercial-free versions of Weird Darkness, as well as two bonus episodes of Weird Darkness every weekend. Patrons get early access to the Weird But True video series on the Weird Darkness website, and they also get exclusive content such as chapters of audiobooks that I'm narrating as I record them, 
often weeks or months before they become available to purchase. I'm currently narrating three audiobooks at the same time. I've got 20 commonly asked questions about demons, UFOs, chemtrails, and aliens, and also Murderous Minds Volume 1 – Stories of Real-Life Murderers That Escaped the Headlines. And I've already got another title lined up when I get done with those. I'm narrating all these three books right now and uploading chapters of each as I record them, and only patrons can hear them. Patrons get all of this for as little as 5 bucks a month. You can learn more by clicking on Become a Patron at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com, you can get the free mobile app, find me on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Family Facebook group, get stories that I didn't have time to use in the podcast, and more. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about it on all your social media, text, email, and any other way you connect with the outside world. You can email me at Darren at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you'd like to send me something in the mail, you can find my mailing address on the contact page at WeirdDarkness.com. And while you're listening to the podcast, please take a moment to leave a rating and review. I might read your comment here in the show. Tierra said, I just want to say that I love your podcast. I work in a home for the mentally challenged, and listening to your podcast helps get me through my very long 12-hour shifts. Listening to the downright jaw-dropping stories keeps me awake, double-checking locks and doors. Keep up the good work, and don't worry about the haters. Chris V. said, This podcast covers anything from aliens to Bigfoot, fairies to true crime. One topic isn't covered more than any other, at least not intentionally. The host has a voice that's very easy to listen to. Story details are in-depth without being long-winded. Excellent podcast. Give it a try. You won't be disappointed. And Dumar JR said, This is one of my favorite podcasts. I truly enjoy it. From the quantity and quality of stories to the way they're told. The host seems pretty awesome. Makes me want to submit my story. Well, I would actually like to hear your story, Dumar Jr. You can submit it at WeirdDarkness.com. And now that you've mentioned that, I'm going to be looking for it. The following stories from this episode are purported to be true, and you can find links in the show notes. The Strange Case of Zeb Quinn's Disappearance was written by Oren Gray for the lineup. The Devil's Sea of Japan was written by Brent Swanser. Terror from the Elisa Lamb case was submitted anonymously to WeirdDarkness.com. By the way, in the show notes, I also will include a link to the uh, story that she referred to, the Elisa Lamb episode. I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. The Gray Lady was posted at GhostsAndGhouls.com and The Smutty Nose Murders was written by Robert Wilhelm, and Something's Messing with the Energy in My House was written by Russell James and posted at MyHauntedLife2.com. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, remember, Psalm 23, verse 4, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. On March 17, 2015, Robert Jason Owens was arrested for the murder of celebrity chef and former Food Network star 
murder of celebrity chef and former Food Network star contestant Christy Schoen Cod. Schoen. For the murder of celebrity chef and former Food Network star contestant Christy Schoen Cod. Her husband Joseph Cod. <coughs> For the murder of celebrity chef and former Food Network star contestant. Dag nabbit. Maybe I need a drink. Hang on. Let's try that again. On March 17th, 2015. Just start over. Called the Izubonin Volcanic Art. Volcanoes called the Izubanan Volcanic Arc, which spans two called the Izubanan Volcanic Arc, which spans twelve called the Izubanan Volcanic Arc. I don't want to see her anymore, but I, I don't know what to do. The only hope I feel is that for I'm reminding you, call Robin. Alexa, cancel reminder. But I don't know what to do. The only hope I feel is that... Play games. <laughs> I have quiz games and interact... Alexa, stop. I don't want to see her anymore. The IRS is the most powerful collection agency in the world. I couldn't sleep. We were being audited. They do not give up until you pay. They put a lien on my house. How about you? Do you owe back taxes? Call Tax Solutions now and get some help. For a limited time, the IRS offers a tax forgiveness program called the Fresh Start Initiative. Our team can make it easier for you to pay back taxes, avoid tax liens, and get a fresh start. Sometimes you just need a second chance. I call Tax Solutions Now and they got the IRS off my back. At Tax Solutions Now, our affiliates are all accredited by the Better Business Bureau and members of the National Association of Tax Professionals. We saved our home and overcame the most powerful collection agency in the world. Time is running out. Call Tax Solutions Now. Call 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. 800-417-9743. 